Hello and welcome to Delicious History on Vacation. This week we are in the beautiful, incomparable Venice, Italy. How did one of the simplest spices create one of the most ornate of empires? Find out on this episode of Delicious History. Delicious History is a podcast designed to show us not just how history has affected food, but how food has affected history. For more information, you can visit us at delicioushistorypodcast.com or our social media handles at Delicious History Podcast, both on Facebook and Instagram. As always, I'm your host, Dave Militello. This week's episode is brought to you by Reliable POD. Imagine a world where you are a content creator, a small business owner, or somebody who likes to make merch. Of course, one of the biggest issues when you make merchandise is that you have to usually buy a lot of it at one time and sit on a large inventory, hoping, praying, pleading that everyone is going to buy your product, only to just have something to sit on. With Reliable POD, POD standing for Print on Demand, you can have products of all types, ranging from shirts to hats to cups to whatever, printed on demand as your customers order them. For more information, you can visit ReliablePOD.com. Well, we finally made it to our first real destination in Italy. In our last episode, we were in Milan, but it really wasn't a destination since it was just more or less a layover between trains. Today, we actually arrived in the city of Venice proper. And you know what a lot of people don't know about Venice is there's actually two Venices. When you think of classical Venice with the gondolas and the bridges, that's what we call the lagoon portion of Venice, and that's classically the city itself. On the mainland is the real city of Venice, and by real I mean the modern city of Venice. That's where the government is, where most of the inhabitants of the city actually live, and if you get something made in Venice or done commercially in Venice, it's probably going to be done there on the mainland portion. But... If you go to Venice and you visit the lagoon, oh my goodness, it feels like Disney World because it's just like a ride, you know? You go there and especially when you're on the water, it just doesn't feel real. And to be perfectly honest, there really aren't a lot of locals that live here anymore. The vast majority of the city are just tourists and the number of people who permanently live here in the lagoon area number less than 10,000 people. I mean, seriously, you come out here and it's like a resort. 99% of the people that are walking past you on the city are other tourists. And so it doesn't feel bad in a sense because, yeah, it doesn't feel as authentic as it could be. But just like when you're at a resort, you don't feel bad about being a tourist because everyone's a tourist. So strangely, it actually helps to let you enjoy the experience more. That said, it's still a gorgeous place to visit, and I always love coming here. The city really does its best to maintain the structure and the beauty, but the truth is it's not going to last that much longer, so you should get on over here as soon as you can. Also, if you do come here, be sure to try one of my absolute favorite dishes to have while you're in the city. Risotto Nero. Yes, it's a pretty touristy thing to do, but it's also pretty fun. 
basically, it's risotto, which is uh, short grain rice made into a uh, a creamy uh, goop. And of course, I say that in the best of ways. Uh, made with cuttlefish, which is very similar to squid and is known locally as sepia. Now, if the word sepia sounds familiar, that's because you're probably thinking about early forms of film that used ink from this animal to give it its brownish-black color. The risotto itself, as the name implies, is pitch black because it uses a ton of the ink from the cuttlefish, Uh, but it also uses cut-up pieces of the cuttlefish itself. The flavor is pretty good and not all that fishy, considering the ingredients that you're using. The waiter at the restaurant that we went to said that my wife was very brave because she was wearing all white while eating a big plate of risotto nero. The best part is that after you eat it, your teeth are black and it's going to make some Instagrammable moments for sure. So talking about flavor, flavor is something that's intrinsically linked to Venice because of its role it played in the spice trade during the Middle Ages and well into the Renaissance. There are lots of places in the world that became disproportionately strong because of their location on the water. We could think of Great Britain and Portugal as two great examples of this. Although not having the landmass of a country like France, their ability to take advantage of their location and become master sailors led to them having a tremendous amount of opportunities and profit available to them. But a nation that was even smaller than Great Britain and Portugal that took advantage of their marine location was Venice. But that it's also located at major land transportation hubs, much like Milan was in our last episode. So goods could come or go from the port of Venice and easily have easy access to land transportation to just about anywhere in Central and Southern Europe. Because of that, fortunes could easily be gained if you played your cards right in the city of Venice. And that's where our story begins. Picture yourself in the year 1173, and Venice is a major city, but not really a great power at this point. Romano Mairano is your classic Venetian and tries to make his fortune by trade. Unfortunately, things haven't been going so well for him the last few decades, and he finds himself at the brink of bankruptcy. But his story isn't all bad. Just two years earlier, he narrowly escaped a massacre in the city of Constantinople, though he did lose ships and large amounts of inventory in the process. Even though he's still alive, he comes back to Venice with a massive loss on his hands and piling debts. He knew that whatever happened, he knew that whatever happened, he would have to make some money and make it fast. With that in mind, he knew he had to come up with something big. But that something big turned out to be something quite small. Peppercorns. During this time, people have been using pepper for quite some time throughout Europe, but it was never cheap. Pepper had never been able to be grown anywhere even close to Europe and always had to come from Southeast Asia. But surprisingly, pepper has a long history in the West. We have records of pepper going all the way back to the 13th century BCE of pharaohs being mummified with peppercorns in their noses. The Greeks were using peppercorns all the way back in the 4th century BCE, and by the time of the Roman Empire, peppercorn trade was in full swing, though still quite a luxury. The average Roman citizen certainly wasn't putting peppercorn in their gruel. For the vast majority of pepper's history in the West, Egypt has always been the hub for purchase. This is simply because ships would come from Southeast Asia and go into the Red Sea, with Egypt being the most logical place to pass the goods from the ships to the merchants. As such, the city of Alexandria in particular became well known for traders of pepper. This was true even well into the Middle Ages, 
and Venetians most often got their pepper from traders in Alexandria. Even by this point, it was still extremely valuable and was often used as collateral or even as a currency. But one of the biggest issues with pepper during the time frame of our story is that Europe was not exactly on friendly terms with the Middle East. Remember, this was the period of the Crusades in Christian countries and Muslim countries, while they did do trade with each other, did so at great risk. Much of the trade that was done between the Middle East and the West was often unregulated and offered very little protection for traders. Remember in our last episode we talked about pirates going after saffron ships? And this was absolutely true of just about every other spice ship as well. Considering the fact that the Pope did not want any kind of trade between Christian countries and Muslim countries, and many Muslims didn't like trading with Christians either, you were pretty much on your own if you wanted any kind of trade between these two worlds. In addition, you'd also find yourself in competition with other merchants. The Venetians at this time were very much competing against the Genoese, and often they would poach off each other. You could think of this like privateer warfare that we see later on in European history, especially in the New World. All of this danger and risk made the ships ineligible for any kind of insurance because, hey, nobody wanted to insure something so risky. This made spice trades even more profitable because, frankly, you could name your own price when you were dealing with that much danger. Okay, so now we know the background of the story and why Mairano was both crazy and brave to get into this line of work. So he starts off by borrowing money from a wealthy friend. Speaking of which, if you'd like to be my wealthy friend, I am taking applications at delicioushistorypodcast.com. So he takes money from his wealthy friend, goes to Alexandria, and buys up a whole bunch of peppercorn. And wouldn't you know it, everything went by without a hitch. He was able to bring an entire ship full of peppercorns to Venice with no danger from the pirates. With that peppercorn, he immediately paid off his creditors and made a pretty hefty profit in the process. With these big profits he made, he was able to invest into more ships, more men, and more voyages back and forth, not just for peppercorns, but other spices as well. Mairano went from someone who went from bankruptcy to being now one of the wealthiest people in Venice and helped to build what it later became. Now, this is really the end of his story and the beginning of that of Venice's, as we will eventually become to know it. Of course, Maidano didn't start the city of Venice by any means. In fact, Venice had really been around since at least the 5th century CE. Most scholars believe that the city of Venice was founded by refugees from nearby cities at the end of the Roman Empire. We all know that Venice has a lot of islands, but did you know those islands aren't natural? They're actually all man-made. In order to escape invading armies coming from the north, these refugees from nearby cities basically found some swampland and started making their own islands out of timber, rocks, and any other material they can get their hands on. That's the reason why the city is sinking little by little every year, since these are not naturally made islands. At the very, very end of the 7th century, Venice became its own self-ruling city-state, known as the Republic of Venice. Even though it was officially a republic for over a thousand years, during this time was when it really started to act like an empire. As merchants like Mairano started to make their fortunes, the city itself became more and more wealthy. When someone during this time would sell their pepper, a pound of pepper would make its way all the way to places like London and sell for the equivalent of a week's wages for an unskilled laborer. To put that in perspective, minimum wage for a lot of areas in the U.S. is either officially or unofficially between, like, say, $10, $15 an hour. 
That would mean that a pound of pepper would have sold for the equivalent of something like four to $600. Now, imagine what it would be like to sell an entire ship worth of this stuff. As traders became more prosperous, they were doing a lot more than just trade with pepper. This included massive amounts of other types of spices, as well as silk, timber, and, unfortunately, products like slaves. Venetians weren't very picky when it came to what they were buying or selling. This became a society of people solely based on profits. I guess you could say they were a lot like the Ferengi from Star Trek. Actually, actually, I bet the Venetians would have loved the rules of acquisition. Oh yeah, and by the way, that's for those who keep saying I don't use enough of my Star Trek references. Well, there you go. The city had to grow along with its trade, since they were both interlinked. You see, ever since the fall of the Roman Empire, the Mediterranean became a free-for-all. The Byzantines were able to control certain parts of the oceans, but that was only for limited parts of the Mediterranean and for limited periods of time. Remember that the Byzantines considered themselves to be Romans, because, well, they were. But their reconquest of western lands were only for short periods of time. As more and more of Europe was being controlled by strong city-states like Florence and Venice, decentralization meant no single power was controlling large amounts of sea and therefore pirates were able to take advantage of this decentralization. Even as the church controlled large amounts of Europe as well as the Holy Roman Empire, this only translated to somewhat more centralization on land, but not really in the Mediterranean itself. As Venice became more wealthy, it found itself having to have a stronger and stronger navy to protect its merchants. This worked out good for both the government as well as the merchants themselves, since the government would be taking in large amounts of tax revenue, and the merchants would be protected from pirates and even enemy states. The Republic of Venice not only included Venice proper, but also large amounts of coastal land along the Adriatic coast, as well as portions of Greece, Crete, and Cyprus. As the Republic had a stronger and stronger presence in the Mediterranean, it became necessary to have some kind of relationship with them if you wanted to do business there. During this time, cities like Genoa, Pisa, and Amalfi were also major players in Mediterranean trade, but their importance became less and less important over time. In fact, you could say that Venice's control of the Mediterranean trade was one of the big reasons why people like Christopher Columbus searched for alternative spice routes, since Christopher Columbus himself was from Genoa and didn't want to be working with the Venetians. Another reason why it was so much better to work with the Venetians was because even though they were officially Catholic, they really didn't discriminate as long as you had money. Remember that when Venice was really forming and at its peak, these were the times of the Crusades. The Eastern and Western worlds weren't supposed to cooperate, let alone do business with each other. As the Byzantines were just barely hanging on to their power, Venice had strong ties and trade coming out of Constantinople. Of course, doing business with Constantinople and nearby cities meant they'd be working with Ottoman traders, despite being told explicitly by the Pope not to do this. This led to quite a few Venetian nobles being excommunicated by the church as they were warned to not do business with the Muslims, but continued to do so. Of course, a lot of people in Christian Europe benefited from the trade, so they didn't seem to have much of a problem working with people who officially were in the outs with God. But despite having decades and even centuries of positive relationships with the Muslim world, Venetians suddenly decided to become rank-and-file Catholics by the mid-15th century. In 1453, the Venetians took the side of the Byzantines as the city of Constantinople finally fell to the Ottomans. As a result of this, Sultan Mehmed II declared war on the Venetians, which ended up becoming a series of Ottoman-Venetian wars. Being more traitors than warriors, 
the Venetians unsurprisingly lost a lot of their eastern Mediterranean territories. To make things even worse, around this time you had explorers like Vasco da Gama and others finding better trade routes to India, or finding new territory altogether. Venice tried to get in on the exploring rush that was happening for much of Europe, but, but their navy was designed much more for Mediterranean travel than for open ocean travel. And as if things couldn't get any worse, Venice then experienced a series of plagues that killed more than a third of her citizens. So, as many of the other city-states of Italy became prominent during the Renaissance, Venice began its long descent into obscurity. In all honesty, it just began trading hands from empire to empire until eventually becoming part of the Kingdom and Republic of Italy. Even so, it's still pretty impressive to think how this all started from one of the most beige of spices. Today, Venice is definitely still one of the most beautiful places in the entire world to visit, but it's just a shadow of its former self. So, try to get out here as soon as you can, before it's all underwater. Well, if you'll excuse me, my wife and I have dinner plans to have some gelato along the Grand Canal. Tomorrow, we head over to the capital of the ancient world, the eternal city herself, Rome. Until then, remember that we all write our own history. So make yours delicious. <laughs>